Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, it's a delight to have Dr. John Townsend uh, on in context today. Dr. Townsend is a business consultant, a leadership coach, and a psychologist. John has written 27 books, written or co-authored, selling 8 million plus copies. That's kind of mind-numbing, John. (laughs) 8 million copies. A New York Times bestselling author, you probably know the word boundaries as a synonym with John Townsend, at least I do. Uh, John has been a, a thought leader in this whole area of not only integrating some just stuff, psychology in life and, and thinking outside the box. Um, most recently, he started the Townsend Institute for Leadership and Counseling, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the pro, in the broadcast. John, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Now, let, let's go back to the word you are known for for just a minute, boundaries. I mean, did you have any idea when you started crafting this what it was going to ha- what was going to happen with it? Oh, zero. Um, when Henry Cloud and I wrote that book, we had just seen that um, a lot of a lot of believers had no boundaries, and they were they were kind of running by guilt and willpower. And uh, we thought, well, maybe this will help them. And uh, it was about. A year and a half later that something happened with the word of mouth. We'd been doing a lot of seminars on it and a lot of radio, so we were, you know, we were kind of seeding it. But um, something happened about a year and a half later, and all of a sudden it just hit. And that was not a plan. It just kind of a thing. Kind of a thing. The way it happens, isn't it? For those who, I mean, the the precious few who haven't heard (laughs) of boundaries, give us a a little little primer of uh, what a boundary is. Well, God has a, a way of human relationships and growth and all that, so that um, basically so much of, 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 of life under, under his domain is relationships, I mean, relationship with him and, and, and with each other and ourselves, but also responsibility, that God takes responsibility for the universe, and we have these little areas of responsibility, like our, our lives, our choices, what we do with our time, our money, and our energy, and our passions, and we're supposed to set little boundaries around those things, and the term that I use is a property line, is to kind of say, this is my space. For example, if you look at Proverbs 4.23, it says, guard your heart from vomit for all, all the well, wellsprings of life, that when you guard your heart by saying, my choices are my choices, and my time is my time, and I want to do good things with those things, but I can't give those choices to anybody else, you, by definition, set a boundary. Mm. When, when you have counseled and, and, and worked with couples in the past, uh, there's got to be some predictable areas where they have to create boundaries? Gosh, I never met a couple that had a problem with boundaries. I, mean, I don't know what you're talking about. So. <laughs> well, Cindy and I don't, of course, so you know, I'm sure you and Barbie don't either. You know? <laughs> right. It, it's, just, it's just the human condition that ever since the fall – you know, we're all control freaks. We all want to have it our own way and you know, sanctify the other person and all that. And we have plans for their well-being. And, yep. and and so marriage being the most intimate relationship that God designed, we're always having power struggles with somebody fixing somebody, somebody controlling somebody. We talk about in the book that the several domains of, of problems in marriage, one is when some, somebody's controlling someone else, and that's a bad thing. When someone um, abandons someone, 
someone says, I'm going to distance from you in this marriage because I don't like the way you're playing, when someone manipulates someone by guilt and that sort of thing, and when someone shuts down. So mm-hmm. there's all kinds of ways that we violate each other's boundaries. It's, it's hard. And, uh, you know, we often talk about maturing as believers and growing in Christ. Um, years ago, I penned a little personal prayer called a non-anxious presence. And um, it goes along the line of, you know, Lord, I can't do this on my own. And if you answer this prayer, there's only two people that will know, you and me. Mm. And when it comes to boundaries, is, is there a sense in which, um, you know, the way Cindy might react to me or I react to her or someone else, that to draw that boundary in, in a godly, kind, gentle, firm way, I may be the only one that really understands? I think that's true. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, people often look at it like, like, like having a gracious approach with someone and boundaries are polar opposites, sort of like they're a zero-sum game, mm. that you can be harsh and unloving or you can be gracious and totally codependent and let somebody <laughs> run all over you. But it's not, it's not a zero-sum game. Biblically speaking, it's a both-and. Um, God is very kind and gentle and loves us. But he's got some really strict rules at the same time. And so the goal is to be both gentle and very firm. I always say it this way. Be, be soft on the person and be hard on the issue. When you're soft on the person and hard on the issue, you, you get things done. Mm-hmm. Let's switch gears a little bit. You wrote a book called In Leadership Beyond Reason. Um, so we go from boundaries to now you're delving into the areas of leadership, uh, not just skill sets, but how a leader is curious, how they assess their reality, how they uh, detect, build relationships, live with ambiguity. Expand on this a little bit for us. Well, I've been doing work with corporations and organizations and leaders now for about 20 years, and so I observe how the really the rock stars operate and ones that are very successful, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, large churches, where they're really bearing good fruit to see, okay, what are those people's secret sauce, just because people want to know that. And one thing I found out is that really good leaders uh, work with both sides of their brain. If you, I study neuroscience, and one of the things you find out in neuroscience is the old classic left brain, right brain is really true. The left brain is highly linear and logical and rational, and the right brain is creative and emotional and intuitive based on relationships. And historically, leadership training has been all left brain. You know, get the goal, get the mission, drive toward the goal, and get your metrics, get your EBITDA, get your KPIs, and have your strategy. And you need all that. But now, um, about 20 years ago, a guy named Daniel Goleman came out with the idea called EQ, emotional Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence. And he changed the leadership training upside down, fortunately, the way that I believe in, because what he said was that leaders who are very direct, goal-oriented, can go through the ball and execute – but don't have that intuitive feel for themselves and their own feelings and don't understand and, and aren't able to help other people their own feelings, they don't, they don't perform well. In fact, what we're finding out is that if you've got a, an organization that has, is very in, in, in touch with relationships and high performance, they do well. A company that's in touch with relationships and not performance is, doesn't work well, and a company that's in touch with performance and not relationships even does worse. Mm. So I wrote the book to say – Let's help develop the creative, intuitive, emotional side of your brain. You can lead it at a higher level. When you, when you make those comments in the last, let's say, three decades with sort of this uh, emerging technology, information, entrepreneurs seem to be, 
you know, just multiplying like crazy in the last decade. Do you see a differential in the last two, three decades of the way leadership transpired in organizations and how it is, I hate to use the word evolved, but evolved today? Yeah, it's developed. Um, it, yeah, it's, it, the, the command control operates in certain ways. I mean, you've got to have an army that's command and control, and you've got to have a medical surgical unit that's command and control just because of the urgency of the situations. But we're finding out that those uh, the, the, the model is changing to be um, that if you can't earn respect, if the only way you can get people to do what you want is because of the comp package or the fear they'll be fired, basically your rock stars will leave because they can get a job anywhere if somebody will be nice to them. So the companies that keep the rock stars and go scalable are the ones that understand how to work with teams, how to motivate people from the inside, how to read them well. And so the models become much, much more about character and relationships while not giving up or compromising on performance demands. Your book, uh, Handling Difficult People, um, this was this a trajectory from boundaries? Um, not really. It's kind of a standalone. Okay. This was just... This was just because I, I had so many people in the, the companies I was working with where people would say, you know, things are going well, but I got this one person who sort of drives everybody crazy, and they, <laughs> nobody knows what to do, and they're very talented, and they've got great skills, and, you know, this or they're really good at math or algorithms or sales or marketing or admin, but they're sort of knuckleheads. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to do about them. So I wrote a book where you – you have those relationships that you really can't walk from, that you don't want to walk from because there's a lot of good things happening, but how do you have the helpful conversations to help them straighten out? When I was, uh, I don't know, 15, 16, um, I worked from very early on. I had a job at a photo lab, and I remember going home complaining to my dad, who was in sales all his life, saying, you know, the lab is like 25 employees. It would be great if it wasn't for so-and-so. He drives us all crazy. And my dad, very wise man, just laughs, says, Michael, there's always one. and then he he quit or was fired or something and my dad said watch they're going to replace him and sure enough the guy they replaced him with was you know he was different but he was still a pain (laughs) so i needed that back when i was 16 years old john (laughs) from from a manager standpoint you you always have them right nature pours a vacuum sometimes there you go there you go but from from a manager standpoint, you're always going to have people that are difficult, right? Yeah, um, sort of. There was this thing in Genesis three called the fall, and everything kind of got screwed up after that. Is that what it was called? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go there, are we? Okay. <laughs> well, it's been good talking to you, John. <laughs> okay, so give uh, uh, entice some folks to take a look at your book. What, what can you? What would you lead them in in handling difficult people? Some some tips that would draw them into reading this. Well, one of them has to be that you've got to have a certain amount of empathy and compassion for somebody that's driving you crazy, which is a real mark of spiritual maturity. Sure, sure. But if you don't have compassion and empathy, you won't understand how they tick and where they're broken. So you've got to spend some time understanding them, even if they're just kind of just a lunatic. But having said that, then there are conversations that you can have that will encourage them to look at their impact on people, look at how their behavior is in helping them. It can really help them develop. Mm-hmm. Your newest book, The Entitlement Cure, uh, this one's got to be, I mean, I've got to get it, but um, where did entitlement come from in our last three decades, John? I mean, goodness. 
Well, I'll tell you where everybody says it came from, because it's really easy to put the word entitlement and millennial together. And I really take, um, I, I take another side of that. Um, this is not a millennial problem, nor is the book a millennial bashing book. Um, it, it, I have seen 20-year-olds who are the coolest people in the world, mm. very easy to relate to, hardworking, great values. And I've seen some 80-year-olds who are absolute nightmares to hang around. Mm-hmm. So I, I look at it as a human problem, not a generational problem. But having said that, we have seen in the last 30 years an increase in um, the entitled attitude, which I define in the book as two things. First is I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible for my life and or my impact on others. And secondly is that I deserve special treatment. I don't have to get in the back of the line like other people. That's the core of it. And I think there's been a multiple um, set of variables that's contributed to that. Our, our culture is moving that way. Um, I think the influence of the media um, even Hollywood. I think the breakdown of the family structure has contributed to it. So now we have a lot of people who sort of make it all about them. And, and since I work in business and leadership so much, we're finding, um, especially in America, American businesses are spending billions of dollars having to deal with a work ethic of, I'm going to do the minimum and I need the maximum for it. And they're having to kind of re, retool everything to, to deal with it. So that's kind of why I wanted to write the book. You know, interesting. And again, I, I'm with you. I don't want to just bash millennials, but as, as an older person who hires a lot of younger people, um, it's it's striking that if you're not going to provide them with a, a MacBook Air and an iPhone 6 and certain things, it's almost a deal breaker. And it, it, the expectation level of, you know, a work ethic, my, my dad, probably your father as well. I mean, they were pretty staunch. You get a job, you know, I was working, I was shining shoes in third grade for, you know, a quarter or 50 cents for boots. Uh, there wasn't, it wasn't a debate. That's what you did. Can I tell you a funny story about that? Absolutely. Well, Barbie and I raised our, our kids the same way because we raised them in Southern California in a, in a, in a nice area, affluent area. But you know, you're trying to raise healthy Christians in an area like that. You've got these you know, conflicts, and the kids started coming home with, you know, I deserve this phone and all this, and I deserve this because Billy has this. And so I finally sat down, and I said, hey, guys, let's, let's have a little family meeting. I said, you guys need a lot of stuff, and that's good. God gave mom and me you, and you and me to mom. God gave us to you to help you meet those needs. You need love, and you need God, and you need great times and vacations and training and education and all kinds of cool stuff because we want to get you ready to leave and cleave and go out and make the world. So you need a lot of stuff, but you don't deserve anything. Mm-hmm. So we got to get that word you deserve out because nothing good is going to happen when you say, I deserve it. So we, you know, parented our kids and all that. Well, I got called to uh, speak at a Christian uh, private school in Dallas, Texas, and they said, oh, we got these nightmares here where the kids are saying, I need to have a BMW at 16 and a phone at 9, and can you help us with the entitlement because we know that you studied that. And I said, sure. Well, one of my kids was in college at, in Dallas. So I called him and I said, hey, right before I finish this talk, would you leave your classes or you know, just drive down? And, and just they want to see the end product on this parenting thing. They want to see who came out of the oven. They don't want to hear me. So tell these nice people what you experienced growing up in, a, in an, an affluent area trying to be a godly Christian. He goes, sure. So I spoke, and I talked, I talked about all this stuff. And I mentioned the story about, and, you know, Barbara and I raised the kids to say, you, know, we, you don't deserve anything. So five minutes after I'm, I'm almost done, just a couple hundred parents in there writing notes, nice people. My son walks in the room because he just left class. And I said, okay, come on up here. Hey, give these people five minutes on what a kid 
who was parented with these issues comes in. He says, hi, I'm Ricky, and I'm a junior in college and business. And I was thinking about what I was going to say about all this. He said, the one thing I can remember as growing up is that my dad used to say all the time, you don't deserve anything. (laughs) (laughs) That worked well. (laughs) Yeah, it worked well. We we dodged a bullet on that one. There you go. Um, The the younger, again, I don't want to bash millennials, but Middle Tennessee is a, is a artistic laden community, obviously music city. And there seems to be this passion drivenness. It's a, it's a very, it's a very right brain thing that, you know, I got to do my passion. This is how God's wired me, how he's made me. I use the hand and glove illustration. I say, if you got five fingers, you want to find a glove that fits at least three of them. That's a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. If you got five, man, you know, you've died and gone to heaven. And they look at me like I'm from Mars. And I say, you know, there is a work ethic that you can improve and learn and learn things that maybe aren't part of your plan, but will help you in the future. And and they're like, no, I have to live out my passion. And it's a very curious dynamic for an old school guy like me, who's probably more of a builder than a boomer and watching the, the younger mindset expectation. And you didn't mention universities. I would just toss universities in there because a lot of their thinking right is formed around a university setting which tends to be a little bit more entitlement oriented no mm-hmm. absolutely you know it is an issue um you can't make a marriage on passion alone can't make a career on passion alone can't stay emotionally healthy or spiritually healthy nor can you actually live a long life without medical problems people that live for passion alone don't work out they get really fat they get diabetes they they, they have heart attacks so passion alone is a great thing but it's it, it's the hand in the glove and I, when I hear that conversation, I, I love passionate people. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. artistic and all that. I always tell them, well, are you a Bible guy? And the Christians go, well, sure. I say, well, let's look up the Bible. <laughs> and, you know, we have a lot of great passion verses. And then I bring in the key verses of my book, of the entitlement cure. And I said, let's read Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, where it says, The sovereign Lord is with me, and I have set my face like a flint, because I know I will not be ashamed. Mm-hmm. And that's the pre-incarnate Jesus getting ready to talk about the intense suffering he was going towards for our benefit. There's no passion in that. There is resoluteness, Mm. there's conviction, there's determination, there's value, there's suffering. And I said, I'll find that in several verses, and I'll say, now, if you're a Bible lady or a Bible guy, fit that in there. And the only way you can fit that in is there's some things are are passion-driven and some things are just really, uh, I guess, roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty stuff. Are we going to run to obey? That tends to help the conversation. Yeah. Are we going to run to obey? And obedience is just, you know, when's the last time you heard anyone say, I want to obey the Lord? Yeah. Kind of a novel thought. Um, For those of you who do not know, Dr. John Townsend is also on New Life Radio, New Life Live. You're, You're heard on about, what, 200 markets? Is that right? About 300. 300 markets. And that, is that a daily broadcast? Yes, it is. And you co-host that? Yes, with uh, Steve Arterburn. Uh-huh. Steve Arterburn. Let's talk about the Huntington University and the Townsend Institute. You've just launched this. Yes, we did. Um, there's now um, uh, an online institute where a person can get a master's in organizational leadership or a credential, a master's in counseling or a credential or a credential in executive coaching on a graduate level, all online um, all with my material and content and uh, priced very competitively. I consulted with Liberty University because I like their pricing and it's very reasonable. 
And um, the idea is that busy people want to get a good degree. So I use my biblical content, my own leadership and counseling content, and neuropsychological stuff. And I also have people helping me out that are the fellows of the Institute who are people that are just New York Times bestselling expert. Because I wanted the I wanted the students to get a feel for not just the academic part, but the practical part. So people like Ken Blanchard and Henry Cloud and John Ortberg and uh, Jim Daly, CEO of Focus on the Family, Daniel Amen, John and Julie Gottman. I mean, people have really, really accomplished something. They're, they're also helping out with their videos and talks, too. So we opened up in August. And uh, actually, we are um, taking our next uh, crop of students for the, the early next year, early 16. And our, our students are half, – half of them are in the early 20s, just kind of figuring out college, getting out of that. And half are in the 40 to 60, like, here's a skill set that I want to have. Interesting. But we're having a lot of fun. Interesting. Uh, do you do any of that live? Um, I do a, a lot of uh, I do a, a live webinar once a month okay. where I answer questions to the students and you know about their coursework and that sort of thing because I, I didn't want it to be well the founder you know put his name on it and left I really want to stay engaged with the students mm-hmm. so I, I met with all of them and worked with all of them this, this summer and uh, the live webinar keeps me in contact with them um, um, via via the web. So your journey from seminary to Biola to psychology to author to radio commentator to leadership instructor, um, give us a Dr. John Townsend assessment of Christianity in, first of all, in America today. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those hand ringers, actually, Michael. Um, there are problems. There are lots of problems. But I, I think I have good objective reason to be encouraged because what I see is that um, the faith is still alive and well. Jesus is proclaimed. The Bible is seen as God's infallible rule book of life. And, um, and I've seen the church become a good, good balance of being a training ground for discipleship and evangelism and finding your mission but also sort of a hospital for our brokenness. And so the churches I'm around are very cool and very healthy, and I'm kind of encouraged. Well, that's good news. I'm glad you're encouraged. (laughs) I take it you're not. (laughs) Well, at times I'm very discouraged. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's all perspective, and and I I appreciate, and I should probably, you know, sit at your feet and listen a little more because um, I I see the the lack of Bible knowledge, the experience-driven motivation by so many Christians um, I mean, the, the, the lack of just basic theology of how a believer lives his or her life, you know, marriages that struggle. And obviously we have pockets of, of great joy and success and encouragement, but it, it just seems as a nation, uh, at least the circles I run in, it seems like we're, we're I hate the word, but dumbing down and, and losing traction on why we're here. And it seems to be much more along the lines of, you know, fulfilling my life, my dream, my plan, my goals, my passion, then how do I use the gift, skills, abilities God's given me for his good, for his kingdom, not just to make my life a little bit better? Well, maybe I ought to hang around my friends. <laughs> <laughs> As one of my professors used to say, uh, obviously, jokingly, my advice to you is drink heavily. <laughs> <laughs> When you when you look at trends in neuroscience, you've mentioned that twice now, and I'm a little bit of a neuroscience hack student. Um, what are some insights you have gleaned? I've read a lot of books, Daniel Siegel's and 
Kurt uh, Thompson's a dear friend. And some of this stuff is mind boggling, John, of what we're finding out with neuroscience and neuroplasticity. Uh, you've obviously done some research. You alluded to that in one of your books. I can tell you two things that are just mind blowing in a very positive way. The first is that it once again supports that God's right. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like how when you read archaeology, the more archaeology they read, the more they find out the Bible's true. I just love that stuff. We're finding the same thing in neuroscience, that the way God designed our brains um, to be relationally based and um, we've got to have the cognitive plus the experience and all that, well, all that just proves that, that what the Bible says about human growth and functioning is true. So that's number one was that it, like, it just kind of puts the, the name of the artist on the bottom of the canvas where it belongs. His mm-hmm. name's God. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is what we're finding out is that um, the the uh, if you're an iPhone guy or a cell phone person, you know you know what an app is. I mean, like everybody's got apps for I don't know what restaurant you want to go to, what movies you want to go to, et cetera, et cetera. That the apps can really change the operating system, which we'd never known. That that we always thought the brain was just the brain. Your brain's going to work the way it always works. You'll always be an introvert or an extrovert, or you'll also be high energy or low energy or whatever. And if you have a bad experience, that's just the way it is. is. And now we find out when a person has corrective relational experiences, it actually changes how the cells, the neuronic pathways, talk to each other and, and the actual cells uh, of the, the, the freeways between how the cells go from one place to the other is changed. That's the, neuro, the neuroplasticity part. And it changes from relationship. Mm. So all the stuff the Bible says about love and belonging and comfort and attachment Relationship changes everything. So that's kind of the big thing that I work on with leaders mainly. Romans uh, 12 comes to mind about renewing of the mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to unfold perfectly in the neuroscience. I don't know if you read Doidge's book, Norman Doidge. He's written two works. Um, his book, The Brain's Way of Healing, is basically 10 years of clinical on neuroplasticity and what's, well, I mean, where they're managing pain. It's extraordinary. People that have been on narcotics and pain stimulators and get zero help and they go through neuroplasticity rewiring and within 12, 14 weeks, their pains, if not gone, significantly lessened. And it just, it just, it does make you wonder about this machine God has given us called the human body. I mean, we, we haven't, as Hendrix used to say, we haven't used 5% of our mind. Yeah. Um, it's extraordinary, John. Your your wealth of uh, a grasp of so many topics is it's been so impressive to watch and see how God's using you over the years. When when you look ahead, where where's your hope? You've already alluded to somewhat in the local church, but when you look ahead, where's your hope? Um, I always have to start with God. That He wins. You know, if you're you know, I read Revelation 22, so I know it's hard right now, but he ends up winning. <laughs> so you want to be on the winning team. But um, I think my hope is still in the church, honestly. Um, and, and Michael, I know all the problems are out there. I've seen the ones that you've mentioned, absolutely. But what I found is that when when you read Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, there are people who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. They want to grow. They want to change. They want to find him in a deeper way. They want to exercise their gifts. And what the church does, what the church should do, one of my favorite passages when Jesus said that the very gates of hell cannot stand up against that. And I see it and believe it. Dr. John Townsend, 
author, consultant, leadership coach, um, host of New Life Live, and now the founder of the Townsend Institute for Leadership and Counseling. Thanks for your time today. You bet, Mike. Blessings, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Subscribe to our newsletter for the latest news and information. This is Michael Easley in Context. Don't let the world teach you theology. Theology.